That Medic Podcast, your bi-weekly dose of education and inspiration in the healthcare field. Hey everyone, I'm Simmer, a student at Harvard University. And I'm Daniela, a student at Oxford University. And this is That Medic Podcast. Enjoy! In this episode, I have the privilege of speaking to Dr. Skipper, Editor-in-Chief of Nature. We discuss her career path, science publishing during the COVID-19 pandemic, women in science, and much more. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we launch into the episode, I want to briefly tell you a bit about AMBOSS, who are kindly sponsoring the podcast. Created by a team of dedicated physicians from around the world, AMBOSS is an interactive library of over 20,000 medical topics interlinked with a question bank holding more than 5,500 clinical case-based questions. With all the necessary resources in one place, AMBOSS instantly delivers up-to-date medical knowledge to students, physicians, and faculty globally. AMBOSS has powerful learning and clinical tools combined into one platform, making studying a breeze and life on the wards easier. With the AMBOSS library and question bank side-by-side, students can look up terms instantly when solving questions. Students and physicians around the world use AMBOSS material to excel in their exams and on the wards. Sign up in minutes at AMBOSS.com. Try AMBOSS risk-free with a trial today. Hi, welcome to the show, Dr. Skipper. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I read that you were interested in science from a young age. Why did you choose to study a BA in genetics? Well, hello, first of all, thank you very much for this opportunity. At some point at school, I began to learn about genetics, and I just found it so fascinating to understand the principles that underlie inheritance why we share so many characteristics with our parents and our siblings, but why we don't share others. And so instead of studying general biology, I decided to look for universities that offered a degree in genetics in particular. Based on my experience, that was absolutely the right choice for me. Dr. Skipper then did a PhD followed by a postdoc. How did you find the transition from being a postdoc to joining Nature as an associate editor for Nature Reviews Genetics? I enjoyed that intellectual pursuit of questions. I enjoyed the ability to design different experiments when I was in the lab. But I had one critical problem. My interests were really broad. I was interested in many different aspects of science. And while I was doing my own research, I found that I had to be so focused on what others were researching in the immediate area, also, of course, designing my own work in the lab. I found it frustrating that I couldn't pay enough attention, devote enough time to listening to other talks, maybe attending other meetings, reading other papers in other disciplines. Because at some stage, for many researchers, if they continue their research, it is possible to zoom out again and broaden their interest. But you definitely go through this focused constriction. And I found that frustrating. And I guess I wasn't patient enough to wait until at a later stage of my career in academia, I may be able to broaden my interests again. And so I began to look for other opportunities that would definitely firmly keep me as a member of what I described as a research ecosystem would allow me to broaden my interests. So that's how I ended up on Nature Reviews Genetics. Indeed, my first role in science publishing was as an associate editor on that journal. The journal had just launched then. It was about six months old. It was a really interesting transition. The most 
important change, I think in many ways is conceptual. And that is, of course, when you do research yourself, you make first-hand contribution to discovery. When you become an editor, when you move away from active research, you don't make that contribution to discovery. You make a contribution to research in another way. In my case, it was through amplifying and, and helping disseminate that research and those discoveries. And that has been a theme through my professional life as an editor. For me personally, that transition wasn't particularly difficult. And I felt sufficiently close to discoveries, new questions, new challenges in science to at once be satisfied myself and feel that I'm making a contribution. I describe this as standing right behind the person who's making the discovery and looking over the shoulder at what they're doing. So editors can be very close to that sort of cutting edge discovery as it's being made. Wow, that sounds so exciting, especially being one of the first people to find out about these discoveries as they're being made. Would you say that editors have gotten closer or further away over the 20 or so years? It's an interesting question whether editing has become closer to discovery. If I compare my experience now or the experience of the colleagues on my team, it's as close as it was when I started. Editors are incredibly passionate about the disciplines they support, the research they solicit for the journal, papers they review. It's definitely not a passive process. It's a very active process of engagement with the authors, with the reviewers. I would say that it's as close as it ever was before. And perhaps, like so many aspects of our lives, it's enhanced by available technologies. We can find it much easier to connect with people around the world in ways which, although perhaps not impossible when I started 20 years ago, but certainly they were less frequently used. And of course, now in the time of the pandemic, we've all gotten used to a remote way of interacting and, and very fruitful interactions. Indeed, so much has changed because of the pandemic. How has it impacted your approach to leadership? And how did you take on the challenge of dealing with the enormous amount of COVID-19 related papers and pressure to publish as quickly as possible? I think it's been an incredibly difficult time for all of us. Our normal lives were completely changed. We know about incredible impact on mental health. I think at a time like this, when everybody, myself included, is going through these changes and, and challenges, I think it's really important that leaders really focus on the human aspect and understanding. Because in situations like this, professional life and personal life begin to blend. There is anxiety about professional life, about personal life, health, future of the next generation, and, and so on and so on. It's been a difficult time. Not to be too negative, however, I will point out to one positive aspect of the pandemic, for us at least in the context of nature, and that is what the virtual environment has enabled. And of course, in the past, we were connecting as a team remotely, but it was never even. So some of us were physically in one room and then we were connecting with another team. And that creates a, a certain asymmetry. Today, we've all become used to looking at a team as a collection of little postage stamp-sized heads on a screen. But it's a very leveling experience because regardless of who you are, you are in the same virtual room in the same way. 
in the same direction. So actually one positive thing that has come out for us is that that interaction from team members from across the world has become equalized. Now you asked me also what it meant for us as a journal publishing original research. To some extent, one adjusts to demands, but certainly when the pandemic started, right at the beginning of 2019, when papers started coming in, it was unprecedented. We had no experience of receiving so many submissions at such a short time interval. While, of course, we recognized immediately that at the same time, we had to editorially consider and peer review these submissions very quickly, but with tremendous rigor and robustness. The pressure on our teams, on our editors, especially who specialize in immunology and virology and and genomics, were incredible. First paper that we published, of course, was the genome of the virus. And that paper was published in just about a month from submission to publication with all the peer review, everything, and release of code, which, of course, at a time of a pandemic, is absolutely essential that the genetic information is released out there immediately analysis identification and therefore subsequently diagnosis can unfold it's taught us an awful lot one of the things that we learned is how to be incredibly agile a very difficult time and for so many reasons i hope a time not to be repeated i hope so too i can't imagine how difficult that was and how much pressure everyone at nature was under While I was doing research for my university coursework, I came across this living paper about COVID in nature. I was wondering if this is a concept you'll be taking forward and which will become more common? I'm delighted you've seen the paper. I think it's an interesting concept. The concept itself is actually not that new. Many years ago now, as chief editor of Nature Reviews Genetics, we experimented with a living review. One way of thinking about it is almost like a Wikipedia page, continuously updated by, in this case, a group of trusted and verified editors as the discipline itself progressed. With that particular example, I think we were a little bit ahead of ourselves and everybody else. Fast forwarding to the situation today, I think it's important to consider this idea of a living paper. And maybe I should explain that essentially what this means in the case of the Nature paper that you alluded to, it was an update, if you like, with an extended data set. The question remains the same. The paper was published with a set of analyses on already a very large data set. And then the data set became much, much broader. We're talking about large population genetic data set. And then a set of similar analyses applied on that data set. You can immediately see how, in some contexts, that can be very appropriate and indeed desirable. In other contexts, I think it will continue to make sense to close a chapter in an investigation and publish a paper and then be free to continue maybe in a number of different directions from where that particular paper left off. I'm always an advocate for diversity of solutions and approaches. I think we're better off if we embrace more solutions, one size never fits all, right? We we all know that. Definitely. Could you please walk us through your career path from joining Nature as an associate editor to being appointed the first female editor-in-chief of Nature in 2018? I started in my scientific publishing career just over 21 years ago, actually. And indeed, my first role was associate editor on Nature Reviews Genetics, a journal which publishes exclusively reviews. The experience on that journal was very much working on few manuscripts at a time, 
but very closely engaging with the authors, engaging with sort of scientific editing, trying to guide the authors through how best to tell the story and draw the big picture. Also interacting quite a lot with my art editor colleagues to make sure that it's not just the words, but also the appropriate graphics and figures that support the story. And of course, organizing peer review. At Nature Reviews journals, almost all of the reviews you see in those journals are commissioned by the editors. So that's a very creative part of the role where you have to think about where the field is going, which topics are at a point where they would benefit from a bigger picture overview. Who might be the best authors to tell the story and why? After about seven years at Nature Reviews Genetics, I felt that having helped and supported telling of these bigger picture stories, I really wanted to zoom in and get closer to discovery. And so that's when I moved to Nature itself to be the genetics and genomics editor. And of course, now I was handling primary manuscripts, so original research when it was being submitted to nature. The creativity there continues in a very different way. Here is the ability to identify really interesting scientific stories, new discoveries, or identify potential. Perhaps a talk that an editor hears at a conference, which is clearly describing ongoing piece of work, but the editor sees potential in that work being really influential in the community and beyond, which of course is really important at nature because Nature is a multidisciplinary journal. That was an incredibly interesting and satisfying time in my life where I could really support the genetics and genomics community, all the while feeling part of it. Could you please expand on the creative part of the role that you mentioned? How did you recognize the potential of these stories? Was it mainly conferences? Definitely. Full-time professional editors like myself, going to conferences, doing lab visits or institute visits, engaging in in-depth conversations with researchers is absolutely key to us being able to do our job well and to support the research community appropriately. Every editor has a research background. Some of my colleagues transitioned to science publishing after a PhD. Most of them also have done a postdoc. The reason why this is important is because as an editor, you need to understand how research is done. What are the challenges? What are the real opportunities? What's the thought process? You can really identify with the challenges, but also the excitement so that very close engagement with the research community is absolutely necessary. As an editor, you constantly make a judgment of what you hear, of a future direction or the potential of the current sort of finished story or particular line of investigation. And you evaluate this against the backdrop of what else you have published as an editor, what else other journals have published, against also, for example, where the methodology, instrumentation, technology is, something that may be nice to see in terms of answering a question may not be possible because of technology constraints. And of course, that cannot be held against a researcher. But a few years further down the line, once that technology, in my hypothetical example, has become available, the minimum requirement, of course, shifts because so much more is possible in a much quicker time frame. It's the knowledge of the field, of context in which the field is situated, and the ability to be open and listen and learn continuously, which feeds into 
all that decision making, which makes the job incredibly interesting, actually. That sounds fascinating and challenging. That's right. Now we'll take a quick break to hear a short message from our sponsors. Amboss is a medical knowledge platform built on three fundamental elements. At the core, a comprehensive medical library helps students learn the facts and the nuances of medicine. Also central is the QBank. By using these tools, students unlock the third element, personalized analytics, which helps students make smart studying decisions. Three essential tools of learning all in one place. It's no surprise Amboss has become one of the most popular resources for students and schools worldwide. Ready to take a closer look? Sign up for a free trial today at amboss.com. Having spent another seven years at Nature, I then felt that it was time to look over the fence, if you like. 14, 15 years I spent really embedded in that community that, after all, engaged in researching a topic that had been my passion for as long as I can remember. But I became interested in what was going on in other disciplines. And so that's when I decided to take a step away from nature itself. I became executive editor for a group of journals called Nature Partner Journals. And that was an opportunity to work with researchers in physics, in chemistry, in material science, in environmental sciences. Each of these journals in the portfolio had a so-called academic editor, an individual who full-time works in research, but also is an editor-in-chief of a journal. My role was more advisory, but also involved in identifying opportunities for launching new journals. It was very, very interesting to have that comparison across disciplines, understand what different constraints different disciplines face. And then the next step was actually something I never anticipated. I actually left science publishing for about a year to join a research institute in Seattle to be effectively an advisor on the direction of science and also communication of that science to the research community. That was a very interesting time to go back to an academic setting outside of the publishing community. That was an opportunity to gain a new perspective, a new sort of filter, if you like, through which I could view both the research community, but actually the publishing world as well. However, as I sometimes say, once an editor, always an editor, <laughs> I actually couldn't stay away for very long. After a year, I came back to Springer Nature, the publisher that publishes Nature and, and other journals in the Nature portfolio. And I came back to be editor-in-chief of Nature Communications, which of course is the flagship open access journal of the Nature portfolio, multidisciplinary. It was really interesting to be back. Fortunately and unfortunately at the same time, the role of Editor-in-Chief of Nature became available. So my predecessor, Sir Philip Campbell, announced that he'd be stepping down from that role. I found myself thinking that actually having spent so many years at Nature previously as an editor, I had a vision for where the journal should go. And so I threw my hat into the ring and here I am almost four years later in the role of Editor-in-Chief. So that's my potted professional history for you. You mentioned that you had a vision for nature when you became editor-in-chief. How has your vision and approach to the role changed over time? I would probably say that my broad vision for where I'd like to see nature go hasn't changed in the last almost four years. 
some of what I'm about to say started already before I came into the role, but I saw a real potential in broadening that ambition and, and accelerating that transition, if you like. If you think about the potential for research, and at the same time, you think about some of the biggest challenges that face us today in the world, they're very unlikely to be answered by solutions that come from any one discipline. You need either a confluence of solutions from different disciplines, or actually, quite frankly, a solution that transcends disciplines in the first place. And of course, a multidisciplinary journal such as Nature is perfectly placed to be a forum for publishing such research. Nothing is out of scope as long as it's research. It's that desire to move beyond natural sciences, our desire to think about truly transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary studies that done as a result of collaboration across disciplines, but also collaboration with many different stakeholders. For example, a research paper which is done not just by formally trained researchers, but also, for example, by stakeholders from the wider community to whom this research is pertinent. The most obvious example is engagement of patients and families in designing, for example, clinical trials. We also really interested in making our contribution to ensuring that research ecosystem is much more diverse than it was before. How do we devise scientific questions, research questions, to address needs of the human population? We really need to devise those questions with diverse groups. We're making quite a lot of effort towards being much more inclusive in our conversations, in providing platform to much more inclusive perspectives, much more diverse voices in our pages. I could give you many examples. One that I will mention now, perhaps an obvious one because I'm a woman, I feel very strongly at Nature we should support women in the careers as researchers or in science-adjacent careers as well. That's so important. Speaking of supporting women in science, in 2018, you launched the Nature Inspiring Women in Science Award with Estee Lauder. Why did you partner with a leading beauty company to launch this award? Very good question. Incidentally, I was, of course, not the only person who worked on establishing this award. This was a collaboration with a number of colleagues within Springer Nature. And our ambition really was to shine a spotlight on early career researchers who self-identify as women, who show great promise, those who've just established themselves, who are almost still in the early career, but transitioning towards mid-career, sometimes don't receive sufficient recognition. And often that's a real time of blooming and blossoming and, and real potential and energy as well, of course, because you have enough experience a lot of energy, a lot of ideas. That's a fantastically rich time in one's career. Oh, we realized that, that there were not that many awards for women at that stage of their career. We partnered with Estee Lauder because they actually feel very strongly about promoting women in research themselves. They have a number of initiatives within their own company, but also in terms of educational outreach. Our goal in promoting and supporting women at that stage of their career was completely aligned. It would be interesting and valuable to think how we could have similar awards in parallel, if you like, with 
companies in the space of engineering or things similar, where historically we've not had anywhere near the representation of women professionals. I'm certainly very open to any suggestions should others wish to partner with us. There's certainly plenty of scope for extending this. I think young professional women can only use more support and more exposure for the incredible contributions that they make. That's so lovely to hear, and I'm sure this award means so much to so many researchers. I think despite the very positive increase in the involvement of women in STEM, there's still room for improvement, especially increasing representation in senior leadership positions. How do you think this can be improved in the future? You know, of course, that this is a very difficult question to answer. If it wasn't a difficult question, we would have resolved the issues already. It's incumbent on all of us, on the whole society, to support women in the way that they want to progress their careers. All too often, we look at someone and we make a judgment what we expect them to be or how we expect them to behave. And the sooner we overcome that judgment, in effect, the better for everyone involved, including, of course, the whole society. Collectively, we have a certain expectation what it means to be successful. And that expectation has been shaped by icons, the idols, the the role models that have come before us. And let's face it, most of them are men, and most of them are also white men, who have been able to establish their careers in a specific socioeconomic situation. Things are changing these days, but of course, at some point, men who had very successful careers would have been completely supported by a wife who was looking after the whole household and all the other aspects of their lives. As I say, things are, of course, changing. But if we are now, which we should, going to embrace the fact that people's lives are not unidimensional, an individual is not just their career, but there are many other aspects in their life, then we have to adjust our expectation of what it means that somebody is a role model or somebody is an icon or somebody is successful or not. Another aspect of this is that different individuals approach problems or indeed become successful or become leaders in different ways. It's an individual property, but with very broad brushstrokes, we can say that on average, men tend to have a different approach from that of women. For example, there is some evidence to suggest that women tend to be more collaborative and tend to give greater credit to those who've collaborated with them. If indeed it's the case that women are more collaborative, they have a different way of working, then actually I think that's an incredibly positive thing to embrace. If you look at research, it's potential to address some of the most critical problems that face us today in the world. Solving those problems, addressing those issues requires collaboration. I have great hope that that much more inclusive, much more collaborative approach in which credit is given to all those who deserve it is the way forward. I'm actually very positive about women being much more visible, much more recognized and playing increasingly more important role in roles of leadership, contributing to solving today's most burning issues. I'm so glad to hear that. I think seeing women in leadership positions can make such a big difference for young girls when they're choosing their career. This is a big generalization, 
of course, but I read that generally women tend to feel that they can only try to apply for a job if they meet all the job criteria, whereas some men try applying even if they don't meet all the criteria, maybe because they believe they can learn some of the skills on the job. I think this may be another reason why there's fewer women in leadership positions. Absolutely. That's a very good example. In fact, let me share an anecdote in response to this. Around the International Women's Day, we held a, a virtual nature conference focused on breaking the barriers to gender equity through research. Relevant to what you just said was one presentation from Professor Carol Mandel, who's at University of Bath. She talked about her work in astronomy. She also has held a number of science advisory roles with the British government. I will never forget the way she described how she applied to be an advisor to the Foreign Office, a role which she held for a while recently. Her advice to all the attendees was just say yes. We're talking about an incredibly accomplished researcher and an accomplished woman in, in her own right. And when somebody suggested to her, because of her past interest in science diplomacy, that she may be interested in applying for this position, her first thought, oh, no, no, I am not suitable. I'm sure there are some other male colleagues who are better suited to this role. She discussed it with some colleagues. And of course, they all said, absolutely not. We can't think of anybody else who is better suited. Of course, she ended up being appointed into this role. Her story goes exactly along the lines of what you just described, that self-doubt as an initial feeling, which I think all women who are listening will recognize, as you say, oh, I don't tick all the boxes, or maybe somebody else will have a more relevant experience. Well, maybe they do. But unless you put yourself forward, you will never know applying for a role, for a job or for an opportunity, even if you're not successful, that in itself is incredibly valuable experience. The moral of this anecdote and also what you said earlier is that I think women should value themselves much more than they do. I could definitely relate to this anecdote. I think maybe part of the reason for this could be that some people were told growing up that certain roles are not really appropriate for girls, which combined with the lack or very little representation could affect their confidence to put themselves forward or feeling that someone else is better suited. Hopefully changing the narrative and increasing representation will improve this. Absolutely. You describe yourself as a passionate advocate for mentorship. What role has mentorship played in your career? Sometimes I think when I'm asked this question, the expectation is that I would say there was this one person or these two people who've inspired me and supported me through my life. That's not the case. But what is the case is that I increasingly view mentorship almost as an ecosystem in itself. What I've come to realize only recently is that this mentorship or advice has come from a really wide variety of people, not necessarily just people in my professional sphere, but sometimes completely unexpected, almost casual interactions with individuals. One realization, which I think is really important, is to keep one's mind open to mentorship. Broadly speaking, the role of mentorship and advice is incredibly important. My advice in turn would be to certainly listen to advice, even if in the long run, you end up not following it. But by virtue of considering it and working through it, you will actually reach a better decision, 
a better outcome somehow. When I look back over my professional life so far, I definitely think of a number of different individuals from different walks of life at different stages and different groups, actually, as well. It doesn't have to be an individual. It can be a, that sort of ecosystem aspect who've made me think, made me reconsider my decisions or my actions, sometimes not immediately. Sometimes things come back and resurface after a period of time because maybe they're not relevant immediately. They only become relevant later on in this context. Something that has become more important recently, or at least because I've become open to it more recently, is something that is sometimes referred to as reverse mentorship. Somebody like me, who is certainly an established stage of my career, being mentored by individuals at much earlier stages of their career. I think that's incredibly important and enriching and actually a lot of fun as well. Of course, anything that happens today, I experience as much as somebody who is 20, 30 years younger than me in a completely different stage of their life and career. But I experience it differently for a number of reasons. And that ability to keep an open mind and get an insight, how does a problem look to someone else? How does a solution appear to someone else is incredibly valuable. I know I have revised my position on things, revised my approach to things as a result of these kinds of interactions. Wow. Where would you like to take nature in the next few years? There is so much... I think it's such an exciting time. I mean, I can't think of a time in research that is not exciting, to be honest. I think we will continue on our trajectory of continuing to broaden our focus, to embrace more and more research disciplines. We've only recently, for example, began to embrace social sciences. I'd love us to do much more in that space. I would love us to do more to emphasize the importance of collaboration and facilitate recognizing contribution from different collaborators. If you think about nature, we have both the magazine part, which is the science reporting and sort of news stories and, and opinion writing, as well as the original research. In part, we serve the scientific community, but in part, we also serve the general public, bringing the results of research in a context to the general public. I think we can do more of that. One of the things that has come out from the pandemic, of course, is that heightened interest in research right across the general public. There is a lot of potential for misinformation. We play a really important role in counteracting that. Now, this is not new. That's something we've been doing for a long time. But I feel very strongly that we need to continue doing that. In addition to focusing on academic excellence and academic impact and influence, the desire to focus on real-life impact of research and how we can support that and surface that. I think that that's really important. Definitely. I'm looking forward to reading papers and reviews published in Nature in the future. On a more lighthearted note now, I saw that you describe yourself as an accidental potter. How did you become an accidental potter? And more broadly, what does work-life balance mean to you? <laughs> the reason why I call myself accidental potter is because I became a potter by accident or by coincidence. It has really become a wonderful hobby. I make ceramics when I have a bit of spare time. I really enjoy doing it because it's so different from everything else I do in life. I never thought I had any artistic 
side to me at all. Sometimes, in fact, I joke that pottery is the kind of art for non-artistic people like myself. I hope no potters who listen to this will be offended by the statement. It's a wonderful relaxation and preoccupation that gives me a lot of joy. It also allows me to meet wonderful fellow potters, people I, I actually wouldn't come into contact with in the context of my professional life. You asked me about it in the context of work-life balance. I will be honest and say that sometimes it's really difficult to maintain work-life balance. And during the pandemic, when I have mainly worked from home, it was even more difficult. There is no barrier. There is no commuting time. There is no travel time. It's very easy to continuously work. Even if you take a break for a few minutes uh, of an evening, you can just go back and just continue throughout. I think it's incredibly important that there is a balance of some kind. Work, no matter what kind of work you do, is never ending. There is always more that can be done. Knowing that it's so important that one cares for one's mental health, gives oneself time to recuperate and redirect and switch to something else is incredibly, incredibly important. Because of course, whatever we do in life, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. It's all about pacing yourself and actually really, really importantly, enjoying it in the process. Very much hope that your whoever's listening, that your professional life gives you joy. But my advice will be, even if sometimes it's difficult, make time for those other things as well. That's such great advice. Thank you so much. To conclude the episode, what three pieces of advice would you like to share with students interested in science publishing? Absolutely follow your own interest. Don't choose a path, whether it's career or personal, because of someone else's expectations. You have to live with your choices and yourself for the rest of your life. You have to be satisfied. That's the most important aspect. The second one, don't walk the path alone. Do it with others. It'll be more satisfying and it'll be more successful, I think. The third one, keep an open mind. One of the things that over my lifetime so far, I've realized is that advice comes from many different directions you may not anticipate. So really keep an open mind throughout your career and decision-making. Almost every decision can be revised and advice to do so can come from many directions. Thank you so much for the very valuable advice. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was such a privilege to interview you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. We would really appreciate it if you subscribed, gave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For more content and resources from That Medic Network, please follow us on our social media. All the links are in the podcast description below. Thank you and have a good week.